Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Sleepers wake. Listeners, tune in. The voice you're about to hear calls to us all. My guest today is one of Australia's national living treasures. His book is The Shock of Recognition, and the author is Barry Jones. So, Barry, welcome to 3CR. David, thank you very much for inviting me. No, great pleasure. The book is a compendium of great music and literature, chosen because, as you say, you had a passion, a compulsion even, to persuade people to explore the great works of the Western tradition, uh, shaped by your own experience of how creativity at the highest level, with its exploration of complexity, is life-changing. Uh, how is it life-changing? It's life-changing because you, you ultimately you get yourself out of the shoebox. There's a problem that you, you live in a comparatively restricted environment which is full of familiar things, familiar faces, familiar experiences, the everyday experience of ordinary life. And it's, if I could use the metaphor that uh, um, was written about in uh, Plato's Republic, where he tells the story of Socrates and uh, the idea of getting out of, of what, what's called Plato's cave, that you've got a whole collection of people living down there in the cave, and they think that the life that they have in the cave is all there is. They, they, they've got an idea that out there somewhere there's a different kind of world with, with sun and light and trees and sea and so on, but they think it'll be pretty scary out there. So they say, let's stay down here where it's all very familiar. And in fact, when you read the stuff about Plato's cave and the fact that they entertain themselves by seeing images, shadows on the wall, it's eerily predictive of the world of film and later, of course, of the world of television and the world of the tablet. And you say, oh, look, you better stick with what you know. You better stick with the familiar. Let's all sing the same thing together. Let's sing Aussie, 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 oi, 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 because we're all familiar with it. You don't have to explain. We all know what we mean by certain things. But and does that speak to people's need for reassurance and identity and connection? Well, you've got to... Work out, I think, how far along a continuum you want to, you want to go. Emphasise reassurance to say, is it all right? Is the sun still coming up each day? Or whether you say, I'm going to go to the other end of the spectrum and I'm going to experiment. I'm going to try out. I'm going to look at the world in a different way, in a bigger, in a bigger kind of way. But you compare it almost to a, um, a an experience of transcendence to actually uh, experience. Uh, those sorts of things, music and the literature and such like? Well, from my perspective, it's certainly trans- uh, it, it's transcendental because it, it is at a different kind of level of intensity than you had before. It doesn't have to be music and literature. It can be of the visual arts, but it could also be often, say, um, uh, it can be place. Uh, I've Think quite often the example of uh, of Machu Picchu up in the Andes in in uh, in Peru, that you know you read about it and you 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 think you know what it'll be like and so on. But the day comes when you go there and you you walk around the track, you can't see it, and then suddenly, 
there it is, laid out, and you really can't believe it. But you, you're conscious that there's an order of magnitude different with the level of intensity that you have in, in what you see. But is that due to the individual's uh, imagination, being able to think and, and realise what was done to create Machu Picchu and what it would have been like to live there? Well, it's a combination of things. Of course, it's actually, no doubt, the fact that the the uh, uh, the, the elevation is such that uh, your brain is operating in a different kind of way. That's, that's effectively taken... Even the judicious use of coca tea might uh, might have some sort of impact, but the point is, you it, it is so palpable and it's so powerful that it's difficult to simply downgrade it and say, oh, no, look, it wasn't, didn't really add up to much. And nobody ever says, uh, did you ever go to Machu Picchu? And the the response to say, well, I I really don't remember. Or if, if you got to the stage to say, I really don't remember, you really would be in trouble. Yes, because it's so overwhelming. But then the same, you say, applies to music and literature. You realise when you look at, particularly the, at a very complex work, and I, I was trying very hard uh, not, not to use terms like high culture and low culture, so I was really, I suppose, making the dichotomy between non-complex and very complex uh, uh, music and art. Uh, I mean, if you take the standard, what um, what all our computers and iTunes keep calling songs, whether they're instrumental pieces or not, they're just songs. Typically, they're three minutes long. It's there's an assumption that there's a fairly limited uh, capacity to concentrate, in which you've got a very familiar theme, perhaps six or eight bars, which are essentially repeated. The number of words involved would be very limited, but the but it has the strength to say everybody knows it. Mm. If I was uh, singing it in the tram, there'd be other people singing it as well. The point about uh, uh, some of the very complex works of art and what makes them sometimes very scary and sometimes even isolating is to say, well, I'm I'm reading this great work. I'm reading the tale of Genji, for example, the great Japanese masterpiece, and you can be absolutely confident that no one within sight has seen it or read it or knows anything about it. But when you see it, you recognise here's a completely different way of looking at the familiar world around you. Is that recognition... That's the shock of recognition. The shock of... Aha! But is that innate within people to realise something of greatness or is it something we have learned to do? Well, it's obviously a combination of things. I, can't, I couldn't just specify one single thing. But often it's the, often it's the, the combined impact of, uh, first of all, uh, you, you, you may react to a work when you're actually seeing it performed rather than, say, simply listening it on, on a on your Bose player, um, uh, and, or, and for example, if you were, if you were thinking of religious uh, music, and I, I see myself as a kind of you know, religious fellow traveller, or as I once described myself, a Northern Hemisphere Christian, but I certainly don't regard myself as fervent. But I know that when I go into, say, uh, one of the great cathedrals in Europe, and I hear some very complex masterwork, I'm conscious that it has it, it has it 
it gives me a very different feeling than the world than the than what I'm used to in my very programmed life back here in Australia. Mm. You talk of the Stendhal syndrome or works being numinous, and here is um, actually you've quoted um, your autobiography. Um, I react to the numinous with a shuddering in my spine, changing breathing, faster heartbeat, heightened emotion, the lightning strike of imagination, familiarity with places, sights and sounds which transcend the normal and quotidian. This sense which bursts beyond rationality often explodes in contact with creativity, music, literature, painting, sculpture, but also with landscape, nature and the night sky. It's a very physical thing. Oh, well, there's there's a physical reaction. There's no question of that. And of course, the 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 term Stendhal syndrome comes from the the great uh, French novelist who wrote uh, the Charterhouse of Palmer and Scarlet and Black, which I've referred to in the book. <clears throat> and he was at um, he was in uh, Florence in 1817 at the Santa Croce Church, wonderful church. And there you've got the terms of Galileo, you've got uh, the tomb of Michelangelo, you've got, in fact, the tomb of, of, of Machiavelli, and you've got an empty space where they hope one day the remains of Dante might be brought from Ravenna, fat chance of that ever happening, but being brought from Ravenna to go back to Florence. And up above, you've got, uh, you've got frescoes by Giotto. And when he was there, he experienced, well, in fact, what I was writing in my book was really more or less a paraphrase of the sort of thing that he said. He was conscious of this shortness of breath, this sense of being simply overwhelmed by it all. But people sort of experience the same sort of thing. I mean, uh, many Christians go to Jerusalem and have the Jerusalem syndrome because their experience or what they have been expecting is a, a, there's a fulfilment of, of something they've been longing to do uh, for such a long period of time. Is it the same or how is it? No, and, I, and of course you've got a, obviously a very similar phenomenon where, where, where people go, go to Mecca or mm. to Mashhad in, in, in Iran. Uh, I think it's actually, I think it's 180% different. I think the difference is that you find people who are very troubled in their lives and they're saying, I'm looking for the truth. I'm looking for the one the one single unifying principle which brings it all together and you think, ah, now Allah is great. That's really all I need to know. That's all, and I, that's all I need to repeat. And then you look around and you say, oh, and it's reinforcement because there's half a million people and they're all reacting as I am. And what I'm really going on about is to say, your experience, David, and my experience might be parallel, but they're certainly not identical. And music and literature takes you beyond. It doesn't necessarily give you the exactly. answer. And you, and you say, my God, oh, there you are, I'm using a religious <laughs> term. Well, we're so, so much part of the culture. But you say, goodness me, uh, uh, you know, I, I need to know more. I'll give you an example. The other day, you know, I had never... I'm very, very familiar with Shakespeare. I consider myself as reasonably uh, uh, well-placed, but I'd never actually seen The Winter's Tale. And a couple of weeks ago at the Nova, I went to see uh, 
the Kenneth Branagh production of The Winter's Tale with Judy Dench. And have you ever seen The Winter's Tale? No, I have it not. It is stunning. Yeah. It is stunning. It's right up there. Mm-hmm. It's right up there with the big four or five. And the power of that, it wasn't just the production, the power of the production, the power of the writing. And in the end, there's a very, there's a terrific review in The Guardian where it said, um, where the Guardian reviewer said uh, uh, at, at the end of the play, the leading characters are all in tears and the reviewer said, and so was I. And but did Shakespeare intend to do that? I mean, this is the, the thing my, about... My oath he did. My oath he did. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he... he look, one of the very fascinating things about, about Shakespeare and I... Uh, this is something I've written about at considerable length um, in the book. But I'm interested in the connections between, uh, between Shakespeare and Montaigne. And you can see, I think, one of the reasons that there's such a heavy emphasis in the, in the late, great Shakespeare plays uh, on the role of the soliloquy, something that, although in fact... They extraordinarily, they, they do succeed very well on stage. They can look absolutely... Ex, ex, I mean, Hamlet's always been a very successful play, although it's the most interior of all the plays with all those, all those soliloquies. But you can see the influence that Montaigne had. Montaigne's great collection of essays was translated in, into English first by somebody called John Florio, who was uh, also under the patronage of the Earl of Southampton. It's easy to assume, I think, that uh, Shakespeare, Shakespeare would know him personally. He certainly quoted him in The Tempest. There's a long slab of material, Gonzago's speech in The Tempest, which is word for word from the Montaigne essay on, on the cannibals, uh, translated, by, translated by, by Montaigne. Uh, sorry, translated by, by Florio. And you see, what happens is that what, where Montaigne is so extraordinarily important is that he creates with his essays a, a new kind of tradition, where a new kind of practice, where the writer is saying, I really want to know the way my mind works and uh, what are the things I'm interested in and how do I reach a conclusion? And he thinks, well, it's not as if I go on a kind of a straight line. In fact, my mind's going around all over the, the joint. And, and he said, I'll look at a proposition, and he'll say, that proposition's absolutely absurd, but it's what I believed yesterday. Mm. And tomorrow, I may believe something that's completely different from what I believe today. But um, getting back to Shakespeare in many ways, he was a bowerbird of thought in many, grabbing things and stitching them together, which at times seems um, almost random. And for, for some reason, it, it coalesces. That's, but that's, it, that's his particular form of genius. You know, uh, one, of the, one of the themes going, or two themes going through the book, there are two epigraphs that I've used that I think are quite important. The first epigraph is one uh, from uh, the philosopher Nietzsche where he said life without music would be a mistake. And the second epigraph is actually by a great composer, Stravinsky, where Stravinsky memorably said, lesser artists borrow, 
great artists steal. <laughs> steal it. In other words, they're all drawing from the same. They're all dra- drawing from the same well. And and in the case of Shakespeare, of the thirty-eight plays that he wrote on his own or in collaboration, of the thirty-eight plays, there's not one original plot, not one. But the genius is in the transmutation, that you get what in effect a base metal sometimes, sometimes quite familiar stories, and you say, well, look, I think I can do something with this, which absolutely produces this tremendous impact. Indeed, and it has had a tremendous impact on you. We're on uh, Published or Not 3CR, and I'm talking with Barry Jones. The impact it had on you, when at the age of 15 I saw Olivier's film Hamlet, I felt as if parts of the play were lodged in my head in an intrusive, often painful way. Slabs of Hamlet's soliloquies kept replaying on an endless loop, usually unbidden, although it bore little relationship to my own situation situation except for a dead father. I memorised and can still recite more of Hamlet than any other play. I suspect that this phenomenon may have been commonplace for boys of a narcissistic tendency as they experienced feelings of isolation, rage, frustration, impotence and impatience. This is probably the most personal comment in the book that you make, perhaps. Uh, um Yes, you you you've seen through me. That 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 could that could well be that could well be right. And it's certainly true, you know. Oh, that this too too solid flesh would resolve, thaw, thaw and melt, melt itself into a dew. Oh, that the everlasting. And it's true. I can I can rattle off uh, a, a lot of Shakespeare. It's the longest of all the Shakespearean plays, um, and and the most and the most interior. Well, I think also uh, among certainly. The most powerful, although Lear is a great uh, is a great contender, contender with it. But see, one of the uh, elements that I've been banging on about in the book that is really so significant, and you as a as a former teacher are very well aware of this, is the significance of complexity, the importance of complexity as a, as an environment. Uh, sorry. Uh, uh, as an evolutionary process in personal development. And in a way, you, you start off uh, at, uh, uh, as a baby where, where you've got an exponential rate of increase of complexity that every day there's a significant increase in the capacity to interpret, to pick up material and so on. And then we go up and then, unhappily, there's a period maybe about year nine when things te- seem to flatten off and precisely the time when you'd hope that people would be learning more and more, they say, well, look, I've, I've got the basic skills. Now I need to learn something that will help me with my job. But it's, you know, homo economicus and all that. Uh, and, and you don't need to develop those additional skills. And it's interesting that as people are living longer and longer, and I'm conscious of so many of my contemporaries that I see every day beavering away with this Sudoku. Why? Because they're trying to say, I've got to solve a complex problem today because complexity is going to help my mind ward off that period of the falling into into Alzheimer's. But it's also the need to participate in society. I mean, I see the culture, these works of art, as a way of engaging and yep. being able to participate on a very uh, real level um, and engage and learn more about the world. Um, that's one reason why I became a teacher, yep. to impart that. So it's not just the need to keep your brain active, 
But this is our culture. This is the way, uh, this is who we are. Yes. To, to develop. Um, and as you say, there's all of those plateaus in life. And you see, the other element that's very important in the book, I, I think, is the whole idea of, of organising time in an effective in an effective way so that you can take on some of those big challenges. You find quite often when you talk to people about, say, a masterwork like, well, the Iliad is a good example, they say, oh, it would take me too long. I'd never be able to get through it. It's all so complex. It's all so difficult. I don't think I could do it. And then you have to point out to them, say, that uh, back in August uh, in 2015 in London, at the Almeida Theatre, A-L-M-E-I-D-A Theatre, and you can find it on their website, they had a collection of very distinguished actors reading the entire Iliad, and they did it in 16 hours. Now, you wouldn't necessarily want to do it all in the one day, but it can be done. And even even if you went for a 16-hour slog, you'd still get benefit from it, but then you'd, you'd need to come back, it was, would be desirable. But... The thing is that some people will look at what is regarded as a classic and they'll see it as the equivalent of breaking rocks. They say, oh, you know, it'll be exhausting, tiring, I'll get discouraged, I'll give up. And it's really a matter of saying, look, no, be courageous, have a go. 16 hours, um, you can do the Iliad. You know, with with a, a very complex work like James Joyce's Ulysses, where uh, on the 16th of June this year, every year it'll be Bloomsday, and all over the world you'll have complete readings of Ulysses, and generally people clock in, say, at about 12 hours. I mean, it can be done in a single day, and in fact, the first time I read Ulysses, which is now 60 years ago, um, um, in fact, I did read it in a single day because I wanted to relate it to the events of the day in Bloomsday, because it's so significant. What happened at 9 o'clock? What happened at 10 o'clock? What happened at 11 o'clock? And so Mm. on. It's very much tied to that day. Are we all capable of coming to terms with this complexity? I mean, this book intimidates me in many ways. Uh, Not that it's not... It's easy to read. You're being too modest. It's a list of... um, great works of music and literature, but the breadth you have encompassed um, would take several lifetimes, surely. Well, I I haven't finished my lifetime yet. and uh, <laughs> I didn't and, want to end your it, life too prematurely. And, and, you see, it, I, I put a lot of work into it because, you see, if you take, say, I, I'll give you a good example. Um, I was uh, rereading uh, Anna Karenina, uh, which I thought was, uh, which is, of course, a very, very great novel. And then I came across a new translation by Rosamund Bartlett, very interesting uh, woman who, who commutes between Oxford and Sydney. She's in Sydney at the moment. Anyway, her new translation, I think I just fell in love with it as soon as I read it. And so I had to say to my publishers, much of the irritation, stop the presses, because I want to talk about her translation rather than the Pavir and Volokonsky track, which is very good, but a bit po-faced. And what you've got with Rosamund Bartlett is this sly humour that comes all the time. It's beautifully done. But, yes, it takes somebody of equal genius to capture 
the actual uh, essence. I mean, you've you've mentioned Chaucer yeah. here and the translations, but I don't know whether you can actually go past the original uh, Middle English. One that April with his the march said to the root, because there's something in the metre, in the sound. But how do we capture that in translation? Well, you don't, and I mean, I, I, I thought I, I thought I hedged my bets somewhat, and I, I quoted, for example, the beginning, exactly the, the part that you, you quoted in both Middle English and the other, to say, well, look, there's obviously a, a very close family resemblance, but you've got to put more effort into it. You've got to be prepared more effort if you've got the Middle English, and helps if you've got a glossary or something or other, uh, because a lot of those words have simply disappeared. But the Chaucer chapter, and or the chapter that deals with Chaucer and Tyndall, uh, I think was important because Chaucer's role and Tyndall's role with one of the extraordinary early but incomplete Bibles, uh, you could argue that Chaucer and Tyndall between them probably had a, a greater impact on the formulation of modern English even than Shakespeare. I mean, Shakespeare then clocks in number three, I think, and in fact, it's the three of them which transformed English to the global language that it is today. Mm. Uh, somebody said to me once that English was actually a pidgin language. It was a combination and blend of all these others and that it's then formed this you bet. beautiful, uh, yeah. it has this beautiful versatility, which oh, very yes. few other languages have. Well, it's uh, and again, it's the complexity of it. Yes, indeed. Complexity, time, uh, these are issues that emerge in Barry Jones's book, The Shock of Recognition. The book is a compendium of... I wish you wouldn't use that word compendium because it makes it sound too much like a reference work, and it's not. It, it's a love song. Tell me more. Love song? Well, I mean, the point is I'm saying these works are so wonderful. Don't do them simply because it's a list. Don't look at it as if you've just got a list of things that you found in Wikipedia. Move from one to the other because there's something in it that excites you. Excites, challenges. and challenge you. And that you, you, and that that's the whole point of the title, the shock of recognition, that you look at it and you say, ah. Well, it transcends it, and it gives you a different perspective on life. And it's also that peculiar phenomenon where you look at something that's unfamiliar and suddenly it seems familiar. On conversely, sometimes when you look at a landscape that you're very familiar with and you say, it looks strange. It looks new. It looks new. And it is fulfilling in that regard. Barry, we're going to have to end it there. The Why? I think we've only just started. We've only, we could go on forever. But it's The Shock of Recognition. It's an Allen and Unwin publication. Barry Jones, thank you very much for coming in today.